Hello and welcome to Paleo Cinema Podcast 211. My name is Terry Frost and this time I'm looking at the career of an actor, director, lyricist, writer and all around funny guy Mel Brooks. So I'm going to do some episodes about in single people rather than about movies themselves. And so I thought Mel Brooks was a good place to start. But anyway, sit back, relax, grab a drink, or if you're walking, breathe deeply, and I will get on with the show just after the contact details. Paleo Cinema Podcast appears every two weeks. It's a podcast of classic movie appreciation. The only rule we have is that the movies have to be more than 20 years old. Uh, feedback's important to podcasters, so if you'd like to leave reviews on iTunes, they'd be very welcome. You can also send voicemails or emails to feedbackpaleo at gmail.com or go to the Paleo Cinema Cafe on Facebook. You can even frame me up on Facebook as long as you're nice and civil and don't spit on the carpet. Just be aware that the podcast does have adult themes at times, so just be aware of that. Uh, anyway, I'll get on with the show now, and um, I hope you enjoy it. Hey, how's everybody going? Uh, it's been a little weird here, a little bit wobbly. I did suffer, according to my psychologist, burnout. And so this podcast is delayed, and I really apologize for that. Um, I had some other stuff to deal with i just had to kind of chill out for a little bit and much as i love podcasting it is a kind of intense activity um recording and, and putting together a podcast and so i kind of gave myself a little bit of breathing space for about a week so i apologize for the delays i know there are people out there who hang on my every word and i don't like to disappoint them but re the real part of my life required me to slow down just that little bit. Um, which isn't to say I was sitting on my ass playing Xbox. I did a bit of that, I'll be honest with you, while I was around at home. I did hit the Destiny pretty heavily. But that's not all I was doing. Uh, we went up to Sydney for Easter, uh, Sally and I, to visit family because Easter happily coincided with my 60th birthday. And so the family invited me up there, my sister, Linda, brother-in-law, Gav, and their seven-year-old, Billy, and my mum, to a certain extent, invited me up there. And um, we went up there and spent about five days in the Harbour City, in the old hometown, uh, hanging out. We went to the uh, Royal Agricultural Show. We ate a lot of good food. We hung out, just had a great time of it. And it was just what I needed as well uh, to kind of clear my head. Uh, now, I also got a lot of Facebook love with the birthday. That's the interesting thing about birthdays in this century on social media. On your birthday and within about 48 hours around your birthday, if you've got Facebook friends, you get tons and tons of love and respect and good wishes and jokes and nice little memes and all sorts of shit like that. And I mean shit in the kindest sense. I got a lot of that. And it was great. And it really did um, make me feel that what I do is worthwhile. And the people that I do with and for are wonderful people. And you are. Okay, weather report. I forgot the weather report because I always give a weather report at the start of the podcast. Um, the weather is shitty. I'll be honest with you. It is totally shitty. It's not shitty in a Donald Trump poking North Korea with a sharp stick shitty. But it's pretty shitty. Yesterday was kind of t-shirt weather. Today it's cold and rainy and we have hail and wind and I don't like it. Uh, see what you can do about it, will you? 
it's yeah, I'm looking out the window and it's not looking good. So I've got my great big Yeti slippers on, I've got a hoodie on, even though I've got the heater on in the house because that sudden transition of temperature really messes me around. So fuck you weather and fuck you climate change. Anyway, what have I been watching? It's time for what I've been watching now. I'm just uh, Most recently, uh, last night, in fact, Sally and I went to Gold Class, which is the posh cinema with the reclining seats and people bring you food in during the movie. It's quite nice, but it's expensive. And we saw Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. I'm not going to talk much about it because I'm going to do it on the next Martian drive-in. And also I'm doing it in uh, tomorrow for ABC local radio in the Northern Territory, so I don't want to steal the thunder from that one. Except to say I enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun. It really works. The special effects work is at a totally new level. The world creation and and the way it's brought to the screen is blindingly good. Um, It's the first movie that Sylvester Stallone and Kurt Russell have starred in since Tango and Cash, I think. Uh, But one way or the other, lots and lots of cameos, lots of little uh, Easter eggs for comic book fans in particular. And stay to the end of the film because there are five post-credit sequences. Count them five. Some are little, some are big, some foreshadow, some are just a bit of fun. But um, definitely stay for all five post-credit sequences. In the cinema where Sal and I saw it, we went to a 9.45pm session, which didn't get out till after midnight. Uh, a couple of people walked out and missed out on the Easter eggs. So just be aware of that. Um, so that was a, a lot of fun to watch. Now, when I was in Sydney, I got to a place called Hum on... Um, Kings Street in Newtown in Sydney and it sells music and also sells movies and you can get some hard to find DVDs there at reasonable prices surprisingly enough and I found a movie that I've been looking for for nearly 40 years Um, it's not well known but it's a charming little English comedy called The Man Who Loved Redheads it's got John Justin who was in Thief of Baghdad and Moira Shearer And it's kind of about a guy who, this is towards the start of the 20th century, about a guy who has an obsession with redheaded women. Uh, His wife's not redheaded, but um, he sets up a little flat and over a period of about 30 or 40 years, we see the history of his assignations with redheads. And all the redheads are played by Moira Shearer, which is kind of interesting. Uh, and it has a beautiful last act. I'm not going to spoil the last act. It's a little hard to find the man who loved redheads. But there is an English pressing of it from a couple of years ago, and I picked it up ridiculously cheaply. Um, I saw it first on TV in black and white. That's how long ago it was. But I really like it. It goes in my list of top charming kind of comedies. And one of the things that, um, as time goes on, that I appreciate in movies is movies that delight us not so much you know kind of challenge us and and make us feel bad and um kind of you know take us to dark places yes there's a place for those and i do enjoy them uh to an extent but now and then as a palate cleanser i like a good charming movie made very very well and this is definitely one of those i really enjoyed revisiting it i'm not going to watch it a lot because i want to kind of see it with fresh eyes each time and if I watched it again sometime in the next year I think it may lose a little bit of that charm but nonetheless uh, it was it was a great enjoyable film 
Uh, let's see, what else did I watch? Um, yeah, I, I did Mike White's The Projection Booth podcast. I recorded an episode, which is coming out in May, with Mike and a guy called Joshua Grinnell, who is a drag artist. Uh, his drag name is Peaches Christ. And we talked about the 19, I think it's 1981, uh, sort of biopic, Mummy Dearest, about Joan Crawford, starring Faye Dunaway and Diana Scarwood. And, um, yeah, we had a lot of fun recording that. Uh, there was nice guesting on someone else's podcast. Haven't done it in a little while, and I really should do it more often. But we came at the movie from different viewpoints. Um, Joshua came at it from a drag viewpoint, which was really interesting, and I learned a lot being on the podcast with him. And um, I came at it from a survivor of physical child abuse issue. I didn't make it too serious, but there was an acknowledgement, and um, I, I kind of brought my own life experience to it. So I hope that that comes out and, and sounds good. But uh, go to the projection booth and you'll find it. And also go to the projection booth for all of Mark's other podcasts. He's a very generous host. He's a lovely guy. And I highly recommend it. I'll post up on Facebook when um, it's been released and give it a bit of a plug. But I really loved it. Uh, it was a, a really nice experience for me. And watching Mummy Dearest again, that movie... It's so over the top and crazy at times. It was just a lot of fun to do. Uh, what else did I watch? Another movie I picked up at Sydney at Hum in King Street, and I'm going to give them a plug because I think they're a good shop, is a movie called Nobody Runs Forever, also known as The High Commissioner. It's a kind of Euro spy movie from the 1960s based on a novel by John Cleary. It stars Rod Taylor, Christopher Plummer, Dahlia Lavi, and uh, Lily Palmer. And it's a good little um, kind of Euro crime, Euro spy sort of film. Uh, an Australian cop is sent over to London to arrest the Australian High Commissioner to the United Kingdom on the murder of his first wife. And that, um, yeah, it kind of works. It's not a perfect film, but it's one that I like a lot. And it's one of those rare, large films where Rod Taylor gets to play an Australian. Uh, most of the time he played Americans, but uh, he's a Sydney boy like myself. In fact, he was born not 10 kilometres away from where I was born. And uh, revisiting it was nice. I had seen a copy uploaded and I, I watched it a few years ago. But it's nice to um, have it on disc. And I enjoyed revisiting that one. Like I said, it's not one of the greatest films of all time, but it is still a valid one. Um, let's see, what else have I watched? I watched High Anxiety. Sal and I sat down with the Blu-ray I just got of High Anxiety, the Mel Brooks film, which is the trigger for this episode, in fact, and the reason why I'm kind of going through the career of Mel Brooks in this episode. And yeah, uh, it was a lot of fun. I liked the Hitchcock references. I got the Hitchcock references. I liked the fact that Mel Brooks, uh, a not-too-tall 50-year-old Jewish guy, is playing the Cary Grant role in a um, um, pastiche of... Alfred Hitchcock films, and I love the musical uh, theme song. I like all of it, really. It's really a, a lot of fun, and it's Mel Brooks that he's most playful in some ways. Uh, so that's pretty much it for what I've been watching. So I'm going to take a break now and play a little bit of Mel Brooks doing something. And when I get back, I'm going to go through the life and career of Melvin Kaminsky, a.k.a. Mel Brooks. <laughs> 
Germany was having trouble, what a sad, sad story. Needed a new leader to restore its former glory. Where, oh, where was he? Where could that man be? We looked around, and then we found the man for you and me. And now it's springtime for Hitler and Germany. Deutschland is... And that is why they call me Rolf. Don't be stupid, be a smarty. Come and join the Nazi party. was Springtime for Hitler from the original 1967 movie production of The Producers. It's kind of hard to underestimate the impact that particular scene in that movie had in 1967. The movie was a flop when it came out, which is surprising given it's been remade and was an incredibly successful Broadway musical. It's what they call a slow burn. People saw it on television and on VHS and on DVD, of course. And it's... um, yeah, you know, it's it had long legs and it's lasted for a long time. But in 1967, 22 years after the end of World War II, 
it was for some people way too soon to do a comedy parody of Hitler. Uh, but anyway, I'm going to go back now and I'm going to talk about the early years of Mel Brooks's life and how he became the Mel Brooks that we know and as much as you can any celebrity love. Uh, Mel Brooks was born, as I said, Melvin Kaminsky in June 1926 in Brooklyn. Uh, his parents' families were from Gdansk in Poland, his father's family, and his mother's family were from um, Kiev in the Ukraine. Uh, he had three older brothers, Irving, Lenny, and Bernie, and I'm kind of reading and paraphrasing this from Wikipedia. Uh, his father died of kidney disease when he was two years old. You've got to remember, this was a time before antibiotics. They didn't come in until around World War II, and people died of things that these days would be treated with tablets and injections. And um, Mel Brooks was a small boy, and he, he was a bit sickly. He um, learned how to play drums and made money as a drummer when he was 14. And he... Um, was a psych major at Brooklyn College before he was drafted into the Army. He did a um, specialised training program at the Army and during World War II served on the battlefield as diffusing landmines in the 78th Infantry Division, which is kind of a weird place for a comedian to come from. Um, basically defusing landmines for a living. Now, Mel Brooks has talked a, a number of times about um, his career in the army in a humorous way. Um, and I'll, if, I'll leave you to find those clips because I'm not going to really spoil them by paraphrasing and muting the wonderfulness of the way he dealt with his wartime service in a comedic way. He emphasized and remembered the, the cool stuff and the, and the fun stuff about it. You can look up the 78th Infantry Division on Wikipedia and see what they did during World War II. And Mel Brooks was there for all of that stuff, and there's some pretty remarkable things they did on that thrust into Germany and across the Rhine during the war to defeat the Nazis. So that's always been my justification for Mel Brooks making fun of Nazis and, and all that kind of thing. He fought them. He, he, you know, he disarmed their landmines. He spent a year and a half of his life fighting Nazis. So he's got every right to make a buck out of them. So that's, that's where he comes from. Obviously, you know, he wasn't an apologist for them in any ways. He fought them, and he thought that um, the best way to combat them is to make fun of them. And that may well work with neo-Nazis. Um, just while we're on the subject of Nazis, and I'm kind of diverging here a little bit from the narrative, there's a big thing on Facebook about whether it's okay to punch a neo-Nazi. Um, and Sal and I have a discussion about it, and she seems to think, don't punch a Nazi because you'll get arrested. And I tend to think both of my grandfathers fought the fuckers. If they're popping up again like weeds, the least we can do is punch them. Um, because they're destroyers of civilizations and cultures and peoples. And that's really something that's got to be stopped and nipped at the butt. After the war, Mel Brooks worked as a drummer and pianist at Catskill Resorts in the Borscht Belt in upstate New York. He changed his name to Mel Brooks at that time because his mother's maiden name was Brookman, so he wasn't changing it too much. And there was also another guy playing the Borscht Belt called Max Kaminsky, who was a trumpet player. He didn't want to kind of get mixed up with that guy. So he... Um, 
well, some guy became sick, and then Mel Brooks started doing the stand-up at the resorts and did jokes and movie star impressions. Uh, he did summer stock in New Jersey, and he did a bit of radio work. And he um, ended up being a tumbler at grossing as one of the Bosch Belt's most famous resorts, it says here. Um, he was like the master entertainer. He kind of liked working behind the scenes more rewarding, and he became a comedy writer for television. In 1949, Sid Caesar hired him for the Admiral Broadway Review, which was an NBC TV series, paying him 50 bucks a week. Um, Caesar created his own show, Your Show of Shows, and um, went on to do Caesar's Hour as well. And Mel Brooks was a comedy writer for them, along with people like Carl Reiner, Neil Simon, and Mel Tonkin. So basically, you know, he was there right when television comedy was starting and was very much a part of it and uh, a well-respected part of it. Um, he worked on Caesar's Hour from 54 to 57 and then kind of went into a bit of a fallow patch in his career. And in fact, he was quite close to being broke at various times in the late 50s and early 1960s. But he also did other things as well, which is kind of cool. Um, Mel Brooks also worked on Broadway. He did. He was a writer and um, a performer on New Faces of 1952, which was a um, review on Broadway, um, working with people like Eartha Kitt and Paul Lind and Alice Ghostly and all of those people. You can find a video of the movie, a DVD of the movie of New Faces of 1952. I think it's just under New Faces. There's a very dodgy copy of it on YouTube as well. I picked up a copy of it. In fact, I've got the vinyl LP of it as well. And I've got a, a great fondness for New Faces of 1952. It brought a whole bunch of people into prominence who otherwise wouldn't have had careers. And there was also a New Faces of 1956, I think it was, done on Broadway, and that introduced Maggie Smith to the world. She actually did the Broadway review. It's the Maggie Smith from England. She came over to America, or went over to America, and um, kind of worked from there. So he was a writer on that. He wrote a musical adaptation of Don Marquis' um, Archie Mahidabel called Shinbone Alley in 1957 and uh, wrote the book for a stage musical called All-American starring Ray Bolger in 1962. So he was very familiar with Broadway. He was familiar with musicals. He always liked music. He started out as a musician, as I said. And in 2001, he, um, his musical version of the producers came to Broadway. And in 2007, there was a version of Young Frankenstein about which I know absolutely nothing. But, um, yeah, so here's Mel Brooks, mid-1960s. He's just married Anne Bancroft, which was a very good move on his part. Uh, they were a great partnership right up until her death in 2005. And he did a comedy record, which was incredibly popular at the time. He and Carl Reiner got together and invented the 2,000-year-old man, where Carl Reiner, um, they did it with a tape recorder at parties. Carl Reiner would be the interviewer and would throw questions at Mel Brooks, who was playing a 2,000-year-old man, and just asking questions about, you know, what was Jesus like? What, um, what do people eat? How do people live? that kind of thing. And Mel Brooks would improvise the answers in character as a 2,000-year-old man. Uh, you can find those on YouTube as well. <laughs> they are funny. And they do show that kind of fast-paced and quick-wittedness of Mel Brooks in 
a very early stage. Uh, in 1965, he went on to help create, along with Buck Henry, the character of Maxwell Smart and the TV series Get Smart, which was crazy popular as well for a number of years until the fact that Don Adams was an asshole kind of killed that. It was probably the most successful television spy spoof there was at the time. And um, let's forget the remake with Steve Carell, just because it wasn't very good. So Mel Brooks was involved in that. And then in 1967, he decided he was going to make a movie. And he combined a few things that he knew very well. He knew music, he knew the Nazis, and he knew Broadway. And he brought them all together in The Producers. Step one, we find the worst play in the world, a surefire flop. I raise a million bucks. I allow a little old ladies in the world. I love you. What? I love you. What? I love you! Step three. You go back to work on the books. Only list them back as one for the government, one for us. I Step four. We open on Broadway. Does their scheme work? Does this girl know? Do these boys care? Who is he? Is she a Swedish toy? Hmm? Or just another pretty body? <laughs> and what's their story? See the producers, and maybe you'll find out what it's all about. Starring Zero Mostel. Oh! I want that money! Co-starring Gene Wilder. Give me my blanket! Give me my blue blanket! Give me back my blue blanket! And Dick Sean as LSD. And I give a flower to the big fat cop. He takes his glove and he beats me up. thing to remember about the producers is that it got mixed reviews when it first came out. I just read the New York Times review by Renata Adler from 1968 about this film. And here's the first paragraph. The producers is a violently mixed bag. Some of it's shoddy and gross and cruel. The rest is funny in an entirely unexpected way. It has the episodic review quality of so much contemporary comedy. Not building laughter, but stringing it together skit after skit. Some vile, some boffo. It's less delicate than Lenny Bruce, less funny than Dr. Strangelove, but much funnier than The Loved One or What's New Pussycat. So the reviews were mixed on it because, you know, they were making fun of Hitler and Mel Brooks having come from a review background and a, a comedy background, he did what he knew. So, yeah, it, it did okay box office. It was um, one of those movies that grows and grows as it, people acquire a knowledge of it and view it on television. So he did make a movie for a couple of years, and then he made a, a quite an unusual choice. Most people would have gone along with the same kind of movie, but that's not what Mel Brooks did. In 1970, he made The Twelve Chairs, which was an adaptation of a 1928 Russian novel by um, Ilfan Petrov, 
which was kind of an unusual choice. It's set in the Soviet Union in 1927. It's about, um, it's a kind of satire of of communist Russia and imperial Russia. It, um, it's not really an obvious choice. It is a very funny movie. I've podcasted about it before. It's not a previous paleo cinema. But it's not the sort of movie that we now associate with Mel Brooks. Nonetheless, um, it does work really well. Uh, the cast is good. Mel Brooks turns up uh, playing a, a country bumpkin almost. But it stars Frank Langella, Ron Moody and Dom DeLuise. And it does work well as a comedy. It's not the kind of comedy that we expect from Mel Brooks. But I've got a great fondness for the 12 chairs. I've got a great fondness for the fact that Mel Brooks tried to do something different and didn't go with the next obvious choice. Um, the movie wasn't particularly successful, unfortunately. Uh, I'm just trying to see what kind of box office it did. It may not give it to me, but I'll look it up anyway. If you haven't seen the 12 chairs, it's definitely a gap in your Mel Brooks knowledge, and you really should um, feel that gap. Give me a moment, I'll see what I've got there. Nup doesn't tell me anything at all about the box office on it because those scores weren't particularly kept in 1970. But he made that movie, it wasn't particularly successful, so he decided to go back to a familiar genre. It took him four years to make his next movie and it was the one that made his career as a, a director and screenwriter. And of course, it was this one. blazing saddle he wore a shining star his job to offer battle to bad men near and far we all know blazing saddles it's famous for the fart scene for the race flipping of the sheriff hero um for the fact that richard pryor had a hand in the script uh gene wilder cleavon little all the actors and also wonderfully madeline carr's pastiche of marlena dietrich as lily von stupp uh this is one one of the nice things about now i've got to figure this out about movie parodies is this Movie parodies work best when, if you're an audience member, the more you know about movies in the particular genre that's being parodied, the funnier the movie is. So a good parody has a layer of depth and uh, presumes a certain amount of movie knowledge in the audience. It's okay if you don't have that movie knowledge. You can enjoy Blazing Saddles without knowing a hell of a lot about Westerns, but the more you know about Westerns, the funnier the movie is. Uh, if you know who Randolph Scott is, the you do it for Randolph Scott joke is funnier. Um, the fact that Frankie Lane does the theme song. Uh, if you know about Frankie Lane's history for doing theme songs to Western movies and the absurdity of the lyrics of the Blazing Saddle song, then you really have a greater appreciation of exactly how Mel Brooks went with this one. It's a brilliant piece of work. Um, and the breaking the fourth wall at the end of the film and breaking out of the back lot into the real world um, is it? Is, some people have said that that's kind of you know he didn't know how to end the film, but I think it's a perfect ending for a film. It's about movie making as much as anything else, and it's joyous to watch, and it does have that kind of grotesque Mel Brooks humour, the fart scene, um, the Schnitz and Gruber. <laughs> The whole lot of it is um, 
transgressive still, but within uh, a way that's acceptable to movie studios. And Mel Brooks really did nail it with this. Uh, a lot of people have a lot of time for the next film he made, more than this one. But for me, this is the kind of epitome of the Mel Brooks movie-making style. Uh, Blazing Saddles. It just it does it really well. You can watch it every year and still enjoy it. And every year, because I, I watch more and more movies, I see little bits and pieces that are taken from um, other westerns that they've put into Blazing Saddles. Uh, the really broad cinemascope opening scene with the titles coming up is just so 1950s major studio big release western that it's just it brings a smile to my face every time I watch it and also the more you know about the cinema of Marlena Dietrich the funnier Blazing Saddles is with Madeleine Kahn's Louis von Stupp as well it's very well targeted to cinephiles and you see this all through Mel Brooks's work um, you can even see in um, the producers the fact that they flipped the 42nd Street and all of those kind of stage door musicals of previous eras by ha having a couple of people make a Broadway musical, which they don't want to work, whereas all of the previous Broadway musicals about making a Broadway musical were about wanting to succeed. This one was actually, a, the producers was actually about wanting to fail. And again, Mel Brooks flips it with Blazing Saddles by making the hero and the sheriff a black man at a time when in the 1970s, it was very cool in cinema to be a black male. And um, Mel Brooks really kind of went there. And it's it just, I love the fact that in most Mel Brooks movies, there's a flip that takes the movie into a transgressive, well, well at least for racist Blazing Saddles would be transgressive. But it takes it into a, a different world just by 180-ing uh, a trope from a particular type of movie and if i was ever to own a cinema and if there are any billionaires out there who want to donate me a cinema i'm more than happy to program a kind of retrospective cinema anytime you like what i would do is i would match blazing saddles with one of the randolph scott renowned westerns that bud Bedecker did because i think they work really well together either that or you match it up with one of the bombastic 1950s John Sturgis westerns like Gunfight at the OK Corral. It'll sit comfortably with that other movie, which is kind of taking the westerns more seriously. And also, it will give an audience the context for Blazing Saddles. I'd show Blazing Saddles second after the other film. Or even you could do it with a Marlena Dietrich movie, um, one of the ones where she did um, play that kind of Lily Von Stubb sort of character. So Blazing Saddles was an enormous success, and rightly so. And in the very same year, Mel Brooks released another movie parodying a movie genre with this one. If you're blue and you don't know where to go to, why don't you go where fashion sits? Different types who wear a day coat, pants with stripes, or cut away coat, perfect fits. Dressed up like a million dollar trooper. Trying mighty hard to look like Gary Cooper. Cooper, Cooper! Young Frankenstein's genius. Who else but Mel Brooks would think to match up Mary Shelley with Irving Berlin? and um, do a parody of Frankenstein, which includes a soft shoe shuffle. 
in dinner suits uh, with Peter Boyle and Gene Wilder. It's just insanity. And it shows that, again, that love of cinema that Mel Brooks has. Uh, the fact that he took, um, he decided he was going to do a pastiche of a 1930s universal horror film and make it his own, which he very much did. It's, I mean, you've got Marty Feldman playing Igor, you've got Gene Hackman playing the blind man. And again, the more you know about these songs and the more you know about um, horror cinema and the history of cinema in general, the funnier young Frankenstein is. And it works tremendously well for that reason. I, I just really like it for that reason. And the set designs are perfect. The black and white cinematography is great. I think they use some of the original machinery from the old Universal horror film days as well in the laboratory scenes. It just works. And it, um, even though I like Blazing Saddles a lot more, maybe because I like Westerns a little bit more than I like Universal horror films of a certain era, it really does um, have that spark of genius and that kind of twisting around of genre, um, making fun of uh, a universal horror film is something that had been done way back in the day. Abbott and Costello did it. A number of other people did it as well. There were haunted house movies and parodies of universal horror films all the way since they started. And yet this one kind of stands out all by itself. The cast is good, of course. You've got Terry Garr in there. Peter Ball, brilliant as the monster. Uh, Madeline Kahn again. As I said, Marty Feldman. It just really um, it brings together an ensemble and, and a kind of group of Mel Brooks regulars that really works tremendously well. I haven't seen it in a couple of years. I actually got it on Blu-ray. I may watch it after I finish recording this podcast because I've got a little bit of time. Uh, yeah, I, I actually think I will. I haven't seen it in, in a few years, but I like it. And I, I really have to revisit it now because, again, like with Blazing Saddles, I know more about cinema than I did the last time I saw Young Frankenstein. And so I'll probably get more little bits and pieces of business from it than I did the most recent time that I watched it, which would have been 15 years ago, maybe. But that putting on the Ritz bit is one of Sally, my wife's favourite pieces of comedy cinema ever. She'll just play it on YouTube endlessly at times, in between playing computer games and crafting. So Mel Brooks was on a roll with those two films back-to-back. And so in 1976, he made Silent Movie, which is a kind of screwball silent movie comedy the only person who speaks in it is Marcel Marceau. It's got Burt Reynolds doing comedy. And Burt Reynolds, I think, is never better than when he's doing comedy. I don't think he always does it particularly well, but the fact that he does it is a lot of fun. It's a bit like, in more modern terms, De Niro doing comedy. And, and De Niro's done some shockingly bad comedies over recent years. But um, there's something kind of I like about a serious actor or even an action star actor like Burt Reynolds doing comedy. And it really does work. Um, Dom DeLuise is in it, of course, again. Marty Feldman's in it. Um, again, I haven't seen this one for a few years and I probably should revisit it. But um, I think doing silent comedy, doing a silent movie of any kind and calling it silent movie, um, a total of what? Let me crunch the numbers on this. 46 years after sound started is something that only somebody like Mel Brooks could possibly get away with. 
And again, it, it shows that love of cinema is set in a Hollywood studio in the silent movie era, I think. Just as I'm working off memory here. And again, it shows Mel Brooks's love of cinema. And all of his movies um, iterate different kinds of, of cinema. Um, then he did a movie that I only watched this week, which was High Anxiety, his homage to Alfred Hitchcock. And one of the things that's been said of High Anxiety that's really interesting is having somebody who looks like Mel Brooks play the Cary Grant role or the Jimmy Stewart role in a Hitchcock pastiche is in itself kind of funny. Um, you've got, uh, again, a good ensemble. You've got Howard Morris in there, Madeline Kahn once more, Harvey Corman coming in um, from having been in Blazing Saddles as well, Cloris Leachman again after Young Frankenstein, and um, even people like Ron Carey and Rudy DeLuca, who helped write the film. Rudy DeLuca plays the murderer uh, in the movie. Uh, it, it's just a lot of fun. And again, the more you know about Hitchcock, the funnier it is. And Hitchcock himself was fine with the movie. He had lunch with Mel Brooks a number of times and even suggested a joke which Mel Brooks didn't have the money to do for the movie. Uh, but he would have done had he had the money. One of the things I like about High Anxiety, which is very underrated, is that Mel Brooks singing the theme song from High Anxiety is actually a pastiche of late-era Sinatra, where Sinatra was kind of getting lazy and, and very stylized. And a lot of the moves you see Mel Brooks doing in High Anxiety is very, very late-era concert Sinatra. Um, he doesn't have Sinatra's voice or intonation, but he, he puts it across, and it, as much as High Anxiety is a pastiche about Hitchcock, that one piece is a pastiche about Frank Sinatra in a very pointed and interesting way. And then we come to one of Mel Brooks's movies that isn't particularly well-liked, but I've got a, a really great fondness, and I think it's amongst his best work. One of the scenes in History of the World Part 1, uh, well, not one of the scenes, but one of the sketches and one of the um, parts of history that are outlined in History World Part 1 is a brilliant piece of cinema. I mean, the, the movie kind of bites off more than it can chew and, and chews like buggery, basically. Uh, you start out with the dawn of man to the dis distant future. You've got uh, the Roman Empire. You've got what happens at the Last Supper. You've got the French Revolution. And you've got the Spanish Inquisition. And all of it is, um, you know, again, it's, it's a whole series of sketches and it's kind of you're tied together. But if you have a look at the Inquisition scene and the Inquisition musical number, it's comedic genius. I rewatched it uh, for the first time in a few years just the other day. And you've got so many different things coming into this and blending into it. You've got soft shoe stuff. You've got... Um, Henry Higgins type My Fair Lady talk, musical talk. You've got old school um, swing era jazz in there. And you've got an Esther Williams style um, water ballet all in one, I don't know, 12 minute sequence of the movie with uh, Mel Brooks playing Torquemada and just, you know, the, uh, singing and dancing and talking about torturing. Jewish people to make them confess and convert to Christianity. And, yeah, I mean, 
you can't really say it's too soon because of the Inquisition was a couple of birthdays ago. But it really does um, show a love of old school musicals. And again, it's that thing of Mel Brooks flipping things over. Nobody else would think to do a musical about the Spanish Inquisition in the middle of um, a movie and really make it work. And Mel Brooks is giving it all. He's mugging and singing and dancing and running enormous slot machines with rabbis attached to the wheels. Uh, It's just visually inventive, crazy, and also pinpoint accurate in the style of old school musicals. And I think it's one of the most underestimated pieces of work that Mel Brooks did. I mean, the other parts of it are interesting. I like the Roman Empire scene where he's um, collecting money from the doll office with B. Arthur giving out the money. And he tells B. Arthur he's a stand-up philosopher and she goes, oh, a bullshit artist. And um, all that kind of stuff, that kind of works well for me. I I like it. Um, The French Revolution stuff, less so. But it also ends on a high note and ends with uh, a really interesting little first attempt by Mel Brooks at pastiching Star Wars with this little musical number, which is only short, but really kind of cool. And visually, the Star of David spaceships really do work. See Jews in space! space. 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 that becomes after the Hitler on ice moment in History of the World Part 1. I also like the fact that the narration of History of the World Part 1 was done by Orson Welles and gives it a certain fake gravitas which it wouldn't have had otherwise. And then of course you've got John Hurt playing Jesus in the Last Supper scene with Mel Brooks being the waiter to the Last Supper. Um, Yeah, not all of the jokes land, but I think that there are Within History of the World Part 1, there are moments of genius and moments of that high standard that uh, we know and love of Mel Brooks's work. So from there, um, he did he directed an um, audience with Mel Brooks, which is a TV special, which I did have on VHS, but I've since lost, where it was just Mel Brooks in a little auditorium with a whole bunch of uh, English celebrities talking about... Um, his life and his movies and all the other bits and pieces to do with just being Mel Brooks. And he enchants this audience like nobody else. It's just a be- I'm going to have to try to find it. I don't know if it's on YouTube. Let me just check and see whether the Tube of Views has an audience with Mel Brooks. I'm sure you're fascinated by hearing me type there. Uh, so, yeah, it is. It's there. 
Go and look at it. There's another Mel Brooks movie from 1983 that people think he directed, but he didn't actually direct. And that is his remake of the Jack Benny movie, To Be or Not To Be, which also starred his wife, Anne Bancroft, and his old friend, Ronnie Graham. And it's got a great comedy cast, and George Gaines is in there, Christopher Lloyd, Jose Ferrer, Charles Durning, Tim Matheson, um, Jack Riley, Louis J. Stadlin, uh, George Weiner. It's, um, yeah, uh, if you've seen the original, I like the original a little bit better, but I don't mind Mel Brooks's version of To Be or Not To Be, which of course gave us the Hitler rap as a music video, which came out coinciding with the movie. Um, and this does get that um, great line, and this is purely a corny line, but it really lands well because of Mel Brooks, where he says, while he's um, doing the stage production, Sondheim, send in the clowns. Um, it just kind of worked for me, and it tickled me. But yeah, it's um, it's a really nice little movie. Uh, I think that but yeah, there was room for the World War Two version, which is um, a very fine film itself. And for the Mel Brooks version, I think Mel Brooks has got enough credibility with an audience that if he remakes another movie, then you know it's not going to be a piece of shit, even though it is a remake of an Ernst Lubitsch movie. And it did give Mel a chance to act with his wife, Anne Bancroft. And uh, I think that was kind of cool as well so we go from there to the late later era Mel Brooks with Spaceballs I remember when Spaceballs came out and it is about the Lucas franchise it is a pastiche of the Lucas franchise of course and when Spaceballs came out a lot of the commentary I heard around Spaceballs was that it's Mel Brooks hitting the Star Wars parody market 10 years after Star Wars really didn't work and um, it was kind of dis- you know, dismissed by a lot of people at the time. But it does work. And um, it does kind of show up the simplistic absurdity of a certain franchise pretty well. And again, you've got a, a great cast. You've got Mel Brooks in there playing President Scrooge, which is, of course, Brooks backwards. John Candy playing Barf. Rick Moranis, Bill Pullman, Dick Van Patten, George Weiner, Michael Winslow... Joan Rivers doing the voice of Dot Matrix the robot. Uh, John Hurt's in there again in a very memorable scene. Ronnie Graham, uh, an old friend of Mel Brooks who worked with him as far back as New Faces of 1952's in there. And um, yeah, I'm just going to have to rewatch Spaceballs as well. Um, I won't rewatch a Star Wars movie, but I'll rewatch a Mel Brooks parody of one, which says more about me and Mel Brooks than it does about Star Wars, I suppose. But, um, yeah, I, I kind of like it. I, I think that that criticism was a little bit unfair. And I think, again, Mel Brooks has enough cred that if he's going to make a parody of um, Space Opera, then why the fuck not? Then he did probably one of his you know, not least successful movies in 1991, a movie called Life Stinks which is a kind of homage to another classic Hollywood film. See, Mel Brooks' cinema is all about movies. And um, he plays a rich businessman called Goddard Bolt, who's filthy rich and bets a corporate rival that he can live on the streets of LA without the comforts of home or money. And so he ends up being homeless. And 
it's a pastiche of, and uh, an homage, well, I won't say pastiche, but an homage to Preston Sturgis's um, Sullivan's Travels, which is a classic 1940, I think 1940s film. Um, and again, the cast is pretty good. It's got Leslie Ann Warren playing the love interest. Jeffrey Tambor's in there. Stuart Pank and Howie Morris is back in there. Billy Barty um, and Raymond O'Connor and a bunch of other people. The budget was $13 million bucks and it made $4 million, which really didn't um, help Mel Brooks's career as a film actor. Um, it was the last film directed by Brooks in which he also starred in the leading role. Um, but again, it's Mel Brooks kind of stretching his wings and really trying something a little bit different. It was probably a little bit out of step with its times. But nonetheless, uh, Life Stinks is, is worth revisiting. And it has a funeral scene, not unlike the scattering the ashes in The Big Lebowski, uh, when Howard Morris's character Sailor dies. But apparently, this actually happened to the actor Howard Morris himself when he was scattering his father's ashes. All the ashes blew back in everyone's face. And um, this is according to Mel Brooks. And so The Big Lebowski borrowed that bit for when... Um, the Steve Buscemi character dies and his ashes, Donnie, his character's name is, his ashes have to be scattered by um, John Goodman and Jeff Bridges in The Big Lebowski. But he, that actually happened to Howie Morris. Then we get to um, Mel Brooks's last two films as director, 1993's Robin Hood, Men in Tights, and 1995's Dracula, Dead and Loving It. Men in Tights works... Um, it's got Dave Chappelle in it in a very, very early world. Kerry Elwes playing the hero. And it it's an interesting pastiche because it's a pastiche of bad Robin Hood movies, particularly Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, starring Kevin Costner, not even trying to do an English accent. Uh, again, the, the cast is pretty damn good. You've got Isaac Hayes is in there, Amy Yazbek, Roger Reese playing the Sheriff of Rottingham. Tracy Ullman and Patrick Stewart playing King Richard. Dom DeLuise and Dick Van Patten's back in there. Um, yeah, it, it really does work for me. And again, if you the more you know about classic Robin Hood films, in particular The Adventures of Robin Hood with Errol Flynn, the more you're going to get out of this film. And it, I, yeah, it, it does really... Um, about, by the way, it was Dave Chappelle's first film role. Again, it's one of those later Mel Brooks films where I don't think all of the jokes land, but there are enough in them that it, it does work. And I know at the time it was very popular, and really um, a lot of my friends liked the film, mostly because they knew the original Adventures of Robin Hood, which was probably not original. There were probably Robin Hood movies before that. But, um, yeah, and uh, again... <laughs> Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, the only virtue of which, of course, is Alan Rickman playing the show of Nottingham. But again, um, you know, Mel Brooks had his finger on the pulse there. It came out just after um, the bad Robin Hood movie came out. And it is Mel Brooks' first attempt at a parody of Robin Hood either in 1975. He was involved with a TV series called When Things Were Rotten, which I watched at the time and I really liked. It had Dick Gautier in it, Dick Van Patten, Bernie Copel, and um, Misty Rowe in there. And, uh, you know, it was a kind of cool series. I, I kind of liked it. A lot of people didn't. 
but I didn't mind it at all. And uh, it only, of course, went one season. And let me see how many episodes, because this will be the telling part, um, working out how many episodes there were in the season. Uh, not many. There were 13, so it was only like a half season, really. But I enjoyed it at the time. Uh, the less said about Dracula Dead and Loving It, the last movie that Mel Brooks directed, the better. I think Leslie Nielsen was past his use-by date at that stage, not because he was older, but because that kind of dumb persona he was just cashing checks on at the time. And I don't think it added anything to the vampire genre. I don't think it was a particularly good pastiche of... Um, Dracula movies, you know, if you disagree, please tell me. But for me, it's probably the weakest movie Mel Brooks directed, which is a shame that he kind of ended on that sort of a note as a director. But nonetheless, he has become, over the last 40, 50 years, a cultural icon. Mel, Mel Brooks has made a lot of people laugh, a lot of people smile. And he's also, and from my point of view, the more importantly, he has steered people towards an appreciation of cinema which is something very dear to my own heart and something that I really enjoy. But, um, yeah, and I hope he lives to be 150. He's 90-odd now. He's 91, I think. But I hope he lives to be 150 because I like Mel Brooks a lot. I think he has this incredible life going from living in Brooklyn to World War Two to being at the inception of comedy on television all the way through to now where he's still um a couple of years ago he did a one-man show and talking about his life and his career and all strength of mel brooks i have a great fondness for him and now we should also mention the things that mel brooks did as a producer because his career as a producer from a view of the history of cinema is very much at least as important as his career as a film director. Now, we're going to go into the movies that he produced, just to give you a little bit of an idea. And, of course, everything goes slow. Uh, let's have a look here. Um, the Elephant Man, for one. My favourite year, which is a fantastically good movie with Peter O'Toole and Marklin Hayes in it. Francis, the Francis Farmer movie. He was a producer of The Doctor and the Devils. The Fly, the remake of The Fly with David Cronenberg. 84 Charing Cross Road. Um, yeah, it's, uh, and of course he was a producer on the Producers remake in 2005. Being the producer on The Fly and The Elephant Man alone gives him a lot of credibility as uh, a serious lover of film. So just to wrap it up, I like Mel Brooks a lot. Um, revisiting his movies is never something I get bored doing. And I just have that great fondness for the fact that like myself, he's a cinephile. He has a love of old movies. He knows them very, very well. And he's happy to share his knowledge and his love of them by doing pastiches of classic movie genres. So anyway, um, that's about it for that part. But there's more. Jews in space. No, no, there is actually more. Now, let me get my paperwork together here. We actually have feedback from our listeners and I'm sorry that it's been a while for me to get the feedback out but uh, my good friend David Cummer in Minnesota who actually met when I was in Minnesota back in the 20th century you guys remember the 20th century it was in all the newspapers so David sent a quick note saying hi Terry just a quick note 
been very busy doing the copy editing gig I did for Raymond Luzak, but I've also been doing my best to keep up with listening to your podcast. Thanks for much of your re- thanks very much for your recent mention of Intratolo. The B Movie Cast was one of the first podcasts I listened to, and I've just started listening again. The other thing that has to do with Breakfast at Tiffany's and specifically Mickey Rooney's character, I finally saw the movie a few years back, which surprising since I'm a great fan of Audrey Hepburn. Anyway, I was furious after watching Breakfast because I had not heard anything about Rooney playing such an awful Asian stereotype. How could people have kept this secret? It actually felt like there was a conspiracy to brush this under the rug that's all now thanks for the show talk later david yeah um the mickey rooney thing is out there uh, if you look at racial if you type in racial stereotyping in 1960 cinema you get a picture of mickey rooney with buck teeth and yeah um that's one of the things about this is you can like breakfast at tiffany's and still not like that particular stereotype and it's the one horrible bit of the movie um and it really doesn't work it's nasty and even though the character in the original novella was a little bit stereotypical it wasn't anywhere near the kind of world war ii propaganda pick parody that we had with mickey rooney's um work as mr Yoshi. So, thank you very much for that, David. Uh, we will catch up at some stage. Um, I also got an email from Nathaniel DeBell saying, Dear Terry Frost, I am writing to you after returning home from a double screening of The Thing 1982 and Videodrome 1983 at the Astral Cinema. To properly understand the subject of this email, I must first mention my history with Paleo Cinema and the Martian Drive-In podcast. Because my commutes tend to be quite long, I spend a, long, a lot of time consuming podcasts when I locate a podcast I'm interested in uh, listening to, I always tend to start from the earliest recording. I began listening to your podcast six months ago, and as of this email, I finished Paleo Cinema 127 and Martian Drive in 43. The subject of this message is the feature film on Paleo Cinema 125, The Ruling Class, 1972. Throughout your early Paleo Cinema episodes, you included an audio clip from the, this film featuring the High Voltage Messiah, which I could not identify. You finally mentioned the motion picture when you included the clip in your Star Wars special, and I hurried to watch the film so that I could find the scene in question. What a matter from this viewing was an immense appreciation for the ruling class. It has quickly become a motion picture of high esteem to me. Hence, I would like to express my thanks to you for introducing me to this film. Without your help, I doubt I would ever have seen it. I feel as if I'm near the beginning of my journey in the appreciation of cinema and television. I've not yet identified the genres and directors I like to watch, and often I find it difficult to identify my disposition towards the production. This is especially amplified by my general ignorance of history and techniques of cinema, such that for landmark pictures I struggle to recognise their place. For the ruling class, I do not have this uncertainty of feeling, and for this, again, I thank you. Because of my approach towards listening to your podcast, I'm ignorant of the events and content of the last few years. I've considered contacting you before because of your desire to host more guests on the podcast. However, because I'm not up to date with your recent happenings, I do not feel that I'm in a position to do so. I'm excited to listen to these years of podcasting, and I can only trust that you have continued to uphold a high standard of content. Regards, Nathan DeBell. Nathan, I'm not objective enough to answer that last bit. Uh, But thank you very much. Uh, Some people kind of dip into the very start of the podcast. Some people come in 
later and kind of backfill if they choose to, or if they can't be fucked, they just don't do that. But yeah, thank you for your attention. I mean, 127 and 43 on both of those podcasts, that's a lot of me talking to you. And I'm a little bit in awe of that. But yeah, uh, don't be too worried about not knowing much about cinema. It is something that the information's out there, and over time you do acquire a knowledge of it. And you can kind of fill in the gaps of your knowledge quite easily if you pay attention. If you go into the Astor, you're doing the right thing anyway. Because the Astor is one of the great flea pits of any place left in the world. It rates up there with the Alamo Draft House. And particularly now that Zach Hepburn is running the Astor, um, they're getting some really interesting things. I get the Astor calendar mailed to me every month. And I stick it up on the door of the man cave and have great intentions to go and see a lot of movies there. But don't get around to it. For me, it's about a 30 kilometer drive to get to the Astor but we've done it before I did it to see the Hateful Eight in Ultra Panavision and I'm sure I'll see it again I may even rope in good friend of the podcast Morris to go and see a movie with me sometime during the year who knows the future is a mystery to us all and is full of good stuff as well as bad so thank you for that Nathaniel Uh, glad you enjoy the podcast I hope I've kept up the um, quality. Uh, quality is a variable thing and also yeah, there have been a few ups and downs in my life over the past few years that may have impacted it. But nonetheless, I appreciate your attention. I appreciate the feedback that you provided there. Anyway, people, that's about it. It's time for me to go and do other stuff. Now, there's a Martian Drive-In podcast I'm recording um, tomorrow with Sally, my wife, where we're going to discuss Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. I know I just did the ABC radio gig speaking about it with um, Rebecca McLaren, but Beck and Sally have very different ways of approaching movies, so I'm going to have a lot of fun getting the band back together and talking with Sal about Guardians of the Galaxy because I always talk about the latest Marvel movies on Martian Drive-In podcast, regardless of whether I've done them on the radio or not. So anyway, look after yourselves. Stay warm if you're down here. Stay cool if you're up there. Um, don't let Trump get you down. He will pass like a fart or a summer storm. Um, and anyway, as usual, the, uh, by the way, next podcast, I'll be announcing the winners of the competition for the Patreon subscribers. Patreon subscribers all go into um, a hat, and I'm picking out one overseas subscriber and one Australian subscriber. The Australian subscriber gets a box full of movie-related stuff. The overseas subscriber gets a couple of Daybill movie posters, classic 1960s Daybill movie posters from my collection. So they're, they're easy to transport because they're light. And it won't cost me too much for the postage. But anyway, look after yourselves. And as usual, with the two carries involved, as usual, here are the credits to the podcast in the style of movie credits. In the meantime, take care of yourselves. I really um, hope everything's going fine. And if it's not, it'll pass. And here's the credits. Thank you to all of the Patreon subscribers. And here are the credits in the style of movie credits to acknowledge and thank all of them. We have Tom, our focus puller, Sarah, our special effects technician, Ian, our caterer, Grant, our technicolor consultant, Claire, our script doctor, Gary, our prop master, Morris, our music director, Jan, our dialect coach, Armin, our key grip, Matt, our rattlesnake wrangler, 
Elaine, our scientific advisor, Julia, our casting director, Chris, our camera operator, Christopher, our gaffer, Miss Jane, the wardrobe mistress, Tansy, the foley artist, Alyssa, the location scout, Mark, our second unit director, Paul, our special makeup effects director, Tammy, our donut wrangler, Tim, our New York unit director, Rabbi Steve, our spiritual advisor, Steve, our script doctor, Dylan, our goat wrangler, Eric, our set security lead, Kerry, our second script doctor, Richard, our set photographer, and our extras, Kathleen, Mark, and David. And let's not forget Steve Sullivan, our director of Monster Effects, and Richard C., our transportation co-captain. So thank you very much to all the subscribers, and you too can subscribe at patreon.com slash paleocinema. 